kidding. Uh, anyhow, a um, uh, couple things to mention. Uh, by the, I, I took away our puppet that was here, but today is our, our puppets in the park at 3.30 uh, down at the gazebo. And then this evening at the church, we have the puppet team that's going to be um, ministering during uh, Thirsty Service. And uh, so if you've got uh, young kids and you have neighbors that have young kids, I just encourage you to, to either bring them out to the park, bring them out to Thirsty tonight, or do both. And uh, there's a, a group of kids that are just going to be a, a doing a wonderful presentation um, through puppets. And then uh, uh, if, you have, um, if you're here visiting with us today, we're, we're so glad to have you with us. And in the chairs in front of you, we have... Um, uh, little cards that you can fill out, and it just gives us a little bit of information about who you are and uh, where you're from, and uh, if there's something that we can do to help, um, uh, some information that you would like, we will, we will provide that uh, for you. And also for those who are regular members in our congregation, um, that is also a means for you to communicate uh, prayer requests or uh, address changes or things that you would just like us to know. Um, it's the written version of Twitter, um, and so you can, just, uh, you can just fill that out and um, pass that on to us. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, take them and turn to uh, Psalm 19, uh, 1 9, Psalm 19. And although I'm not going to be actually speaking specifically from this text, it's just one of numerous ones that, that I think um, gives us a, a framework of, of what I want to talk about this morning. What is the Bible as we um, uh, continue to consider this um, biblical basics uh, series that we've been working our way through the summer? Um, and uh, our topic this morning is, what is the Bible? Or uh, a subtitle that I wrote down is, Ancient Words, Changing Worlds. Can we take Scripture seriously? Psalm 119, just starting at verse 7. For the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning with a topic that is just immense. We come before you this morning and try and um, uh, give some clarity and some direction to your written word, um, a word that you have given to us, an ancient word, but a word that is so relevant and so true. It is perfect, it is pure, it is clean, it endures forever. It is worth more than gold, it is sweeter than honey. And yet, Father, sometimes we stumble around and over and through your word so often. We confess our need again this morning of your spirit to interact with our hearts and our lives to make this book live. In fact, it is the living word of God and yet sometimes the old, the, our own deadness and our own hard-heartedness makes it difficult for us to hear it. But spirit of God, make the book live in me. Make it live in these people that are gathered here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark Twain once said, it is full of interest, 
It has noble poetry in it, and some clever fables, and some blood-drenched history, and some good morals, and a wealth of obscenity, and upwards of a thousand lies. Mark Twain was, of course, speaking about the Bible. And when we come to the Bible, we realize that we come to a book that has both its defenders and its champions. It has its critics, its friends, and its foes. But I don't think that there has perhaps ever been a time like the time in which we are now in where the Bible is under such attack. It is being attacked from so many directions, from within the church and from without the church. And we seem to be freshed, uh, or faced again with, with so many fresh questions asked, uh, asked against the backdrop of naturalism and postmodernism. Questions that sort of ask uh, along this line, what does an ancient book really have to say to me today? This ancient book that has the supernatural revelation from God contained in it, does it have anything to say to us in our changing and complex environment? How does this ancient world speak into my changing life today? Does it have any relevance to me? I do uh, say right off the bat that the Bible and the events that it records did occur in a particular place and time geographically and historically. That's simply to say that the Bible is an ancient book. The Bible is written um, at least up to 1,500, or, or probably, sorry, 2,500, 3,000 years ago, some of it. But the thing about the Bible is that it claims to transcend its age. The Bible is very clear in so many places that it is the enduring word of God, that it is the word that will last forever, that it is the word that is eternal, that it is a word that will never change. The grass may uh, fade, or the flower may fade, the, the grass may wither, but the word of God will stand forever. So, yes, the Bible as an ancient book speaks in an ancient world. But I believe also that because the Bible transcends its age, that it speaks to the medieval times. It speaks in a modern age, and yes, it even speaks in our postmodern age. The reason? Because Scripture claims to be more than simply the words of ancient authors. It claims to be the very Word of God. The Bible claims to be inspired. It claims to be spoken out by God, breathed out by God. So although human instruments were used in the recording of the Word of God, it was human instruments that were carried along by the Spirit of God, so they wrote the very words of God. As such, if that is true, then the Bible claims to transcend its age, and to speak authoritatively to the modern age and the age in which we live today. I was fascinated to come across in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, a Paul who's quoting the Old Testament, and he says this. He says, The Old Testament scriptures were given, quote, for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Think of that just for a moment. Books that were written hundreds of years previous to Paul, before he was ever born, before he was ever on this face of the earth, they were written at a time when Paul lived, or for a time when Paul lived, in order to give them encouragement and hope. They had been intended by their author, God himself, to be valid and helpful 
throughout all of time. And so in that respect, the Bible is utterly unique. There is no other book that it was intended by its author to meet the needs of people hundreds of years and thousands of years down the road. And so we have an ancient book that is an everlasting book that has relevance for our lives, our issues, and understanding the world in which we live today. As I thought about this question, um, uh, what, what, what is the Bible? Uh, I thought, well, you know, we could have approached this from so many different angles. We could have talked about inerrancy. We could have talked about inspiration. We could have talked about how we got um, the 66 books that we call the Bible together and a host of other sort of um, ways to approach this. But I thought, you know, the way I'm going to approach it is to talk about the attributes of Scripture. And there's four or five attributes. I'm, I'm going to talk about four attributes of Scripture this morning. Um, one, the Bible is sufficient. Two, the Bible is clear. Three, the Bible is necessary. And four, the Bible is authoritative. I would also probably add, but I won't say much more than this, that the Bible is beautiful. That if you are a student of literature, the literature of the Bible, the way in which it is composed, the way in which it is written is absolutely staggering. There is few, um, there, there is little, little literature which compares with the beauty of Scripture. But I want to just deal with four. The first, then, is simply this. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. And by that, I simply mean to say that in the Bible, we have all the words of God that we will ever need. Let that one settle in your head for a moment. Scripture is sufficient. That meaning, we have all the words from God that we need. We should not try to add to them. And we certainly should not try to subtract from them. But rather, we should live our lives according to every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, the sufficiency of Scripture is a, is a, is a broad topic, but, but it is clearly sufficient in the fact that it relays the message of redemption. It is sufficient for laying out everything that we will ever need to know for what it means to live the Christian life. And it is sufficient in prescribing the life of the church and the way that we ought to live together as a people of God. But there's, there's two dangers that I'm aware of, and there, there may be more when it comes to this understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. And the first is that sometimes we tend to subtract from Scripture. And what are the consequences when we subtract from Scripture? Hunched over his desk, penknife in hand, Thomas Jefferson sliced carefully at the pages of Holy Scripture, excising select passages and pasting them together to create a Bible more of his liking. It's a Bible that you can order today. It's known as the Jefferson Bible. And in that Bible, it's basically a Bible that is a, a summary of the Gospels. But it was a, a Bible that he could feel comfortable with. And what didn't make it into the Jefferson Bible were those sorts of things that he didn't like. Things that conflicted with his personal worldview. So hell, can't be. Cut out passages of Scripture that deal with hell. The supernatural, not even worth considering that cut out the miracles of Jesus. God's wrath against sin. I don't think so. Pen, knife, in hand, throw them in the garbage pile. So that what you have is the very words of God as leftovers or as scraps on his desk or in his waste paper basket. Many here this morning would think of that sort of an act and say, man, I, I understand that that's a pretty serious issue. 
And that ought not be the way that we approach Scripture. Who of us, in the light of the fact that God has spoken, would ever be so bold as to create the Paul Hawks Bible? Or put your own name in there, a Bible of your own making. But in reality, loved ones, many of us do create a Bible after our own liking. We might not literally cut and paste the words of God like Jefferson did. However, if we ever ignore any portion of God's word, whether intentionally, conveniently, or deliberately, we too are guilty of Jefferson's offense. When it comes to the Bible, Genesis to Revelations, it is all or nothing. The Bible is sufficient and it is complete. And it is not for us to take a penknife out and cut away what we don't like. Secondly, though, there's another thing that we sometimes tend to do to the Bible, which, which, which argues against its sufficiency for our life, and that is we add to it. Um, we we add, 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 add things on top of the Bible, and there's a lot of examples of that in Scripture. Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15 describe a situation where, where um, the Pharisees uh, and Jesus are having a confrontation about, um, about Korban, and, and Jesus says to them, well, you have made the traditions of men so important and so high that you nullify the Word of God. In other words, they had added their own layer of traditions, their own layer of doing things, their own way of doing things, to the point that they have made the Word of God null and void in their lives. And so by adding, they had nullified parts of Scripture. And we'll look at a passage in Colossians chapter 2 in a few minutes, which talks about these things. But when we add to the Word of God, what we are doing is we are saying that God's Word is not enough. We're saying that God's Word is not sufficient for my need. That God's word does not address the things that I'm fighting with or wrestling with. And, and so we add to the word of God as a way of sort of, quote, helping out God. You haven't been clear enough, God. You haven't been precise enough, God. So I'm going to add a few rules and regulations to just sort of bolster and clarify your word. And by this, I think, well, by this what I'm meaning is that we set up our own extra precautions. We build our own personal fences around the fences that God has set up to ensure that never, no one ever gets close enough to the edge to fall over that cliff called sin. But see, the subtle message that we send when we build our own fences is we're saying, God, your fences are not good enough. God, your fences are not clear enough. And so we, we help God by building our own fences and by erecting our own no trespassing signs for ourselves, for our children, and for our churches. Trouble is, Paul says that that doesn't deal with the real issue. If you have your Bibles and you, you can find um, Colossians, it's uh, just past Philippians, it's in the New Testament, but um, oh, yeah, Colossians chapter uh, 2, verse 20, and I just want to read this scripture to, to, with you, and listen carefully to it. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In other words, other people's fences, things that God has not addressed, things that you set up to, to protect yourselves from hitting one of God's fences, referring to things that all parishes there use, according to human precepts and teaching. 
listen to this. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Man-made religion. When we add to the scriptures, we are guilty of man-made religion. And we are not dealing with the hard issues that we were trying to resolve anyhow. See, in fact, our, dent- our fences, I have come to sort of see, have a very real danger of setting one on the course of legalism. When we add things to God's rules, with, they, they may be well-intentioned extra-biblical rules and regulations and traditions, but when we do that, we sabotage God's agenda, I think, for our lives and the lives of others in two very important ways. First, instead of protecting ourselves from sin as advertised, we actually increase the odds that somebody will scamper over the fences that God has actually set up. And secondly... Instead of upholding God's reputation and honor, in reality, we can end up scaring away people from God and from Christ. Let me deal with the first one, empty threats. We've all seen it. Most of us who have been parents understand it. Warning after warning, if you do this, this is going to happen. I told you, if you do that again, this is what's going to happen. And then you're too tired, you're too exhausted, and nothing ever happens. And if that's your real habit as a parent, then what eventually happens is your kids just know they never believe any threat that you ever give them because there's never any consequences to what one says. And so what we actually end up doing is our children lose respect or people lose respect for the authority and the boundaries that they should be living up to. And so we pile on these things to the point where we conclude that obedience really doesn't matter. And when we post extra signs that go beyond God's warnings, we undercut his authority. Human nature, I don't know about you, but my nature is often to test boundaries. I'm not sure why God made me this way, Um, and maybe it's my own sinful heart and its own tendencies, but I've never been one who who likes boundaries. Um, But maybe I'm just unique. But you see an electric fence, or you see one of those cattle fences, and you want to touch it. You want to see if it's really true. And, and so the first time you see one of those little cattle fences, you walk up to it and you go, and, and, and if something happens, you go, yeah, there's electricity running through that. And if nothing happens, you say, oh, the farmer's just trying to keep me out of his land. Um, or you might see an electric fence around some kind of phone enclosure or tower structure, and, and it will say electrified fence. And, and most of us, the first time we see that, are not going to walk up to it and, and grasp it and embrace it. We'll take a coin up or we'll find something. We'll throw it against the fence to see whether or not it sparks. But what if there was a sign, or what if the sign that was put up on that fence was simply an extra precaution to actually keep you from jumping over the first fence and touching the real fence? You still might do the same thing to see if there's a spark, and then you might get your little brother or a friend and throw him against the fence to actually see if it was sparking. But once you realize that that warning was bogus, you'd likely jump over that extra fence, and then your, your, your precautions would be sort of undercut a little bit when you came to the real fence. Now think about, what if there were five fences? What if there were five extra fences built around the real fence that was electrocuted or electrified? Well, if, if we had any brains, probably the first time we came to the first fence, we'd, we'd test it. Oh, nothing happened. Come to the second one, test it. Oh, nothing happened. 
Test it. Come to the third fence, same thing. By the time you got to the fourth fence, you think, ah, oh, there's not worth testing. Over you go, you hit the fifth, fifth fence, and you get the shock of your life. Because you didn't take the warnings seriously. And this is what happens, loved ones, when we put extra fences up beyond the biblical ones, and we say that the Bible's not sufficient. See, the first warning might cause us to pause, maybe test the fences, but the second one, we might do the same, but then we're in big trouble. Because God never jokes around. Because God means what he says. I've, I've heard these warnings, um, and you've heard them probably too. Don't go to school dances. Fornication happens there. Don't go to movie theaters because the rapture might happen. That was one I lived with for so many years. And, and um, I guess, as I told you, I tested boundaries and I realized that when I went to the, the theater, the rapture never happened. So that warning was certainly uh, bogus. And so I kept going to movies. Don't have a glass of wine or you'll become an alcoholic. But you see, the problem is people test those fences. And so people go to a dance and they leave and they still have their virginity intact. People go to a movie theater and they leave and the rapture hasn't happened. People go and they have a glass of wine and they find out Bob's your uncle, they're not an alcoholic the next day. In other words, they're beginning to learn that warnings don't mean anything. And our fences then make it easy for us to reach out and touch God's fence. And as I said earlier, the trouble is God's fences are always legitimate warnings. So we, we undercut um, obedience by adding our own fences. Secondly, and I call this sort of the, the gold standard, um, the gold standard Christians. And, and sometimes we add rule upon rule upon rule in our life and, and extra things that, that we do. And, and we sort of hold ourselves up as, uh, as, as the gold standard of what Christians should be like. And what we have done is we've raised the bar artificially higher than God ever intended that bar to be. And what happens is then that we scare people away. I, for instance, have a great deal of respect for people who climb Mount Everest. I have a great deal of respect for people who run marathons. I certainly have a great deal of respect for people who have sacrificed and done what it takes to become uh, 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 an individual in the National Hockey League. We respect those people. But it's very unlikely that I will ever sign up for what they have done. I will likely never go on an Everest climb. I will almost likely never run a marathon. And I will certainly never become an NHL hockey player. But the trouble is, is, is that we, 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 we've raised the standards so high and by... by people's own abilities and own, own sort of uh, ways that, that we forget the fact that that's not the standard for everybody. And what, what Jesus actually does, and I say this carefully, he lowers the standard. Jesus says, come to me as you are. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops first. You don't have to clean up your life first. You don't have to get everything in order first. He says, come to me as you are. Come to me with your stains. Come to me with your problems. Come to me with your idiosyncrasies. Come to me with your sins. Come as you are. And I'll receive you. And then by my spirit, we'll begin to, to work on you and, and to mold you and shape you into the person that I've always wanted you to be. And, and, and so we forget 
that it's a work of the Spirit in all of us that changes and transforms our lives. And I think, secondly, many look at Christians and at the Christian faith and they're stymied even at the very beginning from, by thinking they've first got to somehow prove themselves. They, they first have to somehow clean themselves up and, and have to walk a certain way and dress a certain way and talk a certain way and, and, and have a whole bunch of certain behaviors. Loved ones, that's never what Scripture has asked of them. And, and, and so we add these rules and these regulations and these fences and we give the impression that being a Christian is beyond their reach. That it's only something that a few real special people can ever do. And so we need to be very, very careful not to subtract from the Word of God or to add to the Word of God. Because the Bible claims that it is sufficient for every single issue and need and situation we will ever find. That's point one. Um, secondly, uh, the gospel message and the fundamental teachings of Scripture are clear. Absolutely clear. This doesn't mean that some of the things in the Bible are hard to understand, or not hard to understand, because they are. But I do believe that the Bible is written in such a way that all things necessary to become a Christian, to live as a Christian, and to grow as a Christian are clear. The main message of the Bible is not obscure. And, and, and there's just wonderful hope and truth in that because I don't have to have a PhD. I don't have to know Hebrew. I don't have to know Greek. I don't have to know all the, all the archaeological digs. I don't have to know all of that. I can come to the Bible. I can read it. I can understand it. And I can find salvation. And that is great hope for me. It is great hope for children. It is great hope for those who in the simplicity of their faith come and they read the Bible, they see what their need is, they see what God has provided, and they respond. The Bible is absolutely clear on things regarding redemption and salvation. One of my favorite preachers often makes this saying, um, as I listen to his, 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 his messages, he says, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. And, and I think we ought to embed that into our hearts and our minds. That we, we sometimes get so distracted by minutia, so distracted by extra stuff. Um, not that that doesn't matter, not that it's not important, but the main things in Scripture are plain. You can read the Bible and you will understand them and you will know them. And the things that are plain in the Bible are the main things. And so those things that jump off the page and are absolutely clear, those ought to be the things that we ought to be spending our time and energy uh, on living and understanding. So Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is clear. And thirdly, Scripture is necessary. By necessary, I simply mean this, that without God's Word, we are unable to have a relationship with Him. Now think about that for a moment. Without God's Word, we are unable to have a relationship with Him. That then just ramps up the importance of us guarding and protecting Scripture. It ramps up the necessity for us, even though the world is saying all things contrary, that the Bible is the Word of God and it is necessary for life and salvation. It means that it is necessary for us to communicate the gospel to people in order that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
It means that the Bible is necessary to be read or the contents of the Bible is necessary to be communicated to another so that they can have a personal relationship with God, they can know sins forgiven, and they can know what God wants them to do. How else do you make sense of, and there's lots of passages, but let me just read a couple. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe on him who they have never heard? How are they to hear without somebody preaching? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Loved ones, I encourage you to make relationships with, with, with your neighbors and your workmates and your friends. But you have to share the word of God with them in order to see them come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The word of God is absolutely necessary in order for one to come to faith. What about 2 Timothy 3.15? And Paul, writing to Timothy, says, And you know how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Sacred writings, the scriptures, are able to make us wise unto salvation. Not only is the Bible necessary to start us out in the Christian life, but the Bible is absolutely necessary for us to maintain a walk with God. Matthew chapter 4, 4, we've heard it many times. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Beloved, our spiritual lives are maintained and nourished through a regular, um, consistent feeding on the word of God. I'm not sure why we haven't always made the connection. We understand very clearly that if we go without physical food for, for a day or two or three, we begin to know it. Our body begins to tell us we're in need of something. Our body begins to shut down. Our body begins to eat up its reserves. And so we know I've got to put nourishment in there. I've got to eat. I've got to sustain myself physically. Why do we not make that connection with the Word of God and with the Bible? Because as physical food is necessary for physical life, spiritual food is necessary for spiritual life. And I'm not here to tell you the kind of pattern you ought to have and, and how often you ought to read. I'm just here to tell you, you've got to read the Bible. You've got to nourish your soul in the words of God. You've got to feed yourself in the words of God if you want to grow and if you want to maintain, if you want to make progress in the word of God. Clearly, when we talk about the necessity of the Bible, God has revealed himself in creation. But you will never come to a saving knowledge of God by looking at trees or nature, or fish, or the mountains, or the heavens. You will see something about God, but you will know nothing of the saving purposes of God. That is only revealed in the written word of God. And so the written word of God is absolutely necessary for one to find life and one to live the life. Finally, the last, the last um, attribute of Scripture, we've looked at the fact that it is sufficient We've looked at the fact that it's clear. We've briefly talked about the fact that it's necessary. And we also need to be reminded that Scripture is authoritative. We need to be reminded of its authority. I think you could make the case that this is, this is actually the foundational attribute of Scripture or the foundational attribute of Scripture from which all the other ones stem or grow. And by the authority of Scripture, I simply mean that it demands something of its readers. It demands something that no other book demands of us. Scripture insists that we submit our lives to it. 
And that is such a hard thing for us who are rebellious, for us who are prideful, for us who think we know it all. But, but if this is God's word from beginning to end, not cut and paste, um, clear, then we ought to submit our lives to it and come under its authority. Uh, you know, I, we, we, our theme this morning was rejoice in the Lord. There's a scripture that Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I don't, I don't know what's, why we would have an issue with that. But I know what we do. We, we run around it a little bit. We say, well, what does always mean? And, and does always mean, um, you know, only when I have a good bank account? Or does always mean when my relationships are going well? D- does it mean, uh, you know, it, it probably doesn't mean in adversity. And so it's just a positive. <sighs> Rejoice in the Lord always. And so when you're going through the worst time in your life, you submit to the authority of Scripture and you say, Lord, I don't feel like it, I don't understand, but will you help my heart rejoice in you? We submit to the authority of Scripture. The reason Scripture makes such a unique demand is that it demands a unique claim in reference to its authorship. Scripture claims to be the Word of God. It's the inspired text. Scripture's authority derives itself from the one who gave it to us. There's no higher authority. And so, loved ones, when we come to the Word of God, it's not a matter of, maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's not a matter of, I will today, uh, 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 or I won't today, but I will tomorrow. It's not the matter of saying, well, I'm young, and I want to sow my wild oats, and I want to have fun, and, and, then, and then I'll get serious about the Word of God. No. Its authority applies across the board, across the time, whether, you, whether you're two months old or whether you're 102 years old. It requires that we submit our lives to Scripture. If you were to find one untruth in the Bible, then none of it could be trusted. You understand that? If you were to find one untruth in the Bible, then none of it could be trusted. And if the Bible can't be trusted, then God Himself cannot be trusted. So I believe with all of my heart that the Bible affirms the very words of God. We are to seek and understand those words, and in in so doing, we are seeking to understand God himself. And as we seek and trust the words of Scripture, we are in reality then trusting the God who gave them to us. May we all learn to bring our lives under the authority of the word of God. True preaching really begins with this confession on the authority of the word of God I I preach the only reason I stand up here week after week is because I believe in the authority of the word of God I would be the last person up here if I didn't believe God had spoken I have nothing to say to you your opinions are just as valid as mine your take on the world would be just as legitimate as mine but I happen to believe that God has spoken And that God has spoken clearly and directly. I'm not here to tickle ears. I'm not here to make people happy. I'm not here to bash people over the head with the word of God. I'm simply here to the best of my ability, because I believe in the authority, the sufficiency, the clarity, and the necessity of the word of God, to week by week, to just talk about the word of God, to expound it, to give an understanding to it, so that we might better bring our lives under control of the word of God. I I live with a regular fear built upon 
um, uh, uh, passages like, like the watchman passage of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 7, built upon passages like Job 42.8, when at the end of that whole discourse, when, when, when God has finally restored Job, and, and he's now telling Job, Job, I want you to pray for your buddies. You remember those, those three guys. I can't remember their names. I, I could probably get them, but I'd really mess them up. But God says to Job, I want you to pray for them because I am angry with them because they haven't spoken what is right about me. I never want to speak what is not right about God. So I believe in the authority of Scripture. And so as we think about the Bible then, and as we think about what is the Bible, loved ones, when we come to the Word of God, we come to the living book. We come to the living, enduring Word of God. We come to words that are sufficient, That we have all the words of God that we will ever need for any situation that we will ever find ourselves in. We come to the word of God that is clear. In other words, everything necessary to being a Christian, to living as a Christian, and to growing as a Christian are clear and contained in the word of God. We come to the Bible as a book that is necessary for our lives, our sustenance, and is necessary to proclaim to others so that they too might come into a living relationship with God through Christ. And we come to a living book which is authoritative, which demands that we bring our lives underneath its teaching, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will at the right, at the right time exalt us. The Bible then, loved ones, continues to speak today with authority. It continues to speak today with clarity. It continues to be necessary. And it continues to be authoritative for our life now and for all time. Let's pray.